You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. We're continuing in the book of Revelation tonight. and kind of, I'm going to say this every week, the goal of this series, right, the goal of the book of Revelation uh, is to reveal things, right? It's right there in the title. Um, Revelation is not meant to cover things up. It's not meant to hide and conceal, but it's meant to help us to see Christ. And so as we read the book of Revelation, um, we're not going to do the like decoding historical events and like numerology and all that kind of stuff. We're, gonna, we're looking for Jesus, Because the beginning of the book tells us that that's what Revelation reveals. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, And if you remember from a couple weeks back, uh, I gave kind of this this illustration, this metaphor for how the book itself works. Uh, It's kind of like an instant replay um, for football, for soccer, for whatever sports that use instant replays, uh, where instead of just going chronologically from Christ's first coming to his second coming, the book kind of goes in cycles. We get one camera angle on the church. That's what we spent the last two weeks looking at. And then it'll shift to a different camera angle and look at kind of what's happening between Jesus's first and second comings from a bunch of different angles so that we get a fuller picture. Uh, And we're starting into a new one of those camera angles, a new one of those visions this week. It's a little bit of a turning point in the book of Revelation uh, because up until now, we kind of know, like we're familiar with the book, we kind of know what to do with it. Uh, we've looked at these seven letters to the churches, uh, and we know what to do with letters to churches, right? A lot of the New Testament is that. Romans, Galatians, First Peter, all of these are letters that are written to churches, and so we're used to reading that. But this week, the reading that we're coming into, the chapters that we're coming into, they start to get a little unfamiliar, a little apocalyptic, little like, what are these crazy animals or beings that are flying around? Uh, It's not thrown us in the deep end yet, but we're starting to wade into some of that unfamiliar territory. And because it's unfamiliar, it can be intimidating. Um, But I think the way we talk about revelation in the church often feeds into that intimidation factor. Uh, An example for me, when I was in high school, the church that I went to started a series on revelation. Uh, And we did kind of the introduction one week, and then the vision of Jesus walking among the lampstands the next week. And then we spent a week on each of the seven churches, and that was it, right? Like we stopped at chapter three and went to some other series. I can't remember what the other series was, but I remember thinking, like I was left with the impression, the rest of Revelation either must be way too difficult for me or irrelevant for me. And as I've talked to some of you in the past weeks, I I think that's a pretty pervasive assumption that we have about Revelation. Either that it's too complicated, right, and there's no way that an ordinary Christian could understand it. You've got to, like, go to seminary and read all these history books and have, like, a shelf full of commentaries. Or it's so far in the future that it's irrelevant, right? Or or maybe you just say, I struggle to read the rest of the Bible. I'm not even going to try with Revelation, one of my goals for this series is, is to help you be able to read Revelation for yourself, right? Is it different? Yes, absolutely. It's kind of a unique book in all of Scripture, but it is not inaccessible to us. 
Remember, John wrote it to particular people who lived in a particular place. And they were not highly educated people, right? They hadn't been to seminary. They didn't have shelves full of commentaries, right? And John wrote it to them to encourage them and to call them to endure. And he knew that from them it would go to Christians in the second century who would face persecution, like physical persecution of being locked up and tortured and fed to lions. And he knew that it would be passed down to Christians in the 12th century who would face boredom, and the 17th who would face temptation, and the 19th who would face all kinds of things, and and to us who would face persecution, animosity, boredom, temptation, confusion, doubt. And this book is written not just for like those super Christians or those super academic Christians, but for us, right? For us so that we might endure. So when I explain a a historical concept um, or like some context that's going on, like last week, we spent a lot of time talking about Laodicea. Or when I talk about like, hey, there's this number and it symbolizes this in the book of Revelation. I I know that it can be tempting to say, like throw up your hands and be like, well, how am I ever gonna know any of that stuff? Um, I get that. But instead, why not like jot it down and say like, oh, that's really helpful. Let me be on the lookout for that in the future. Uh, If you want to go deeper with it, uh, I can make some recommendations for some easy commentaries um, that aren't like a thousand pages long, that just kind of give some of that historical context. Uh, But really, I want you guys to embrace a mindset of, I can read this book, okay? So what is it in our passage this week that we need to see that's going to help us to endure, that's going to help us to hold on? Uh, I'm going to read chapter four for us, and then we'll come back about halfway through and read chapter 5, but this is Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. I pray tonight that as we look at uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, that you would open them to us, give us eyes to see, 
Give us ears to hear the good news that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, So I mentioned the first week we were in Revelation that many people have compared this to a picture book, right? If some of the other um, books of the New Testament, like if the Gospels are historical narratives and if the, the letters are kind of these theological arguments, Revelation is a picture book. And so I want to make sure that as we start this, this section, that we have a picture in our minds of what's going on here. So I just kind of want to like slowly work through this passage and help us to see what John is describing. Remember, he's, he's told in the beginning of the book, like, look around and write down what you see in a book. And this is kind of his first attempt at doing that. And so in verse 2, John steps through a door in heaven and he sees a throne, Right? That's where he starts. He starts with a throne, and there's someone seated on it. But he can't really describe who's seated on it because it's too bright. The best he can get is like, it kind of had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, which are precious stones, right? It's bright, it's radiant, it's dazzling, okay? So there's a throne, somebody seated on it, dazzling, white, bright. And then the camera zooms out a bit. And in verse 3, we say, around the throne is a rainbow that somehow looked like an emerald. I don't know what that means, right? Maybe it was a solid rainbow. Maybe all of the colors were tinted a little bit green. Maybe instead of just like water vapor, it had some like weight and heft and permanence to it. I don't know, but around the throne, there's a rainbow, so more light, right? And then zoom out a little bit more, and we have 24 more chairs, right? But they're not just seats. They're also thrones, And they're not empty seats, there's somebody sitting in them. 24 elders, clothed in white with crowns on their heads. Okay? And there's interaction between the throne, right? This this kind of, this light that's so bright you can't see it, not because it's like hidden, but because it's too bright for you. And the 24 elders, there's lightning, right? Flashing back and forth, coming out of the throne. And underneath it all, there's the, the ground itself is a sea of glass, like crystal, right? Smooth, translucent, also bright and shining like crystal, okay? You zoom out some more, and we get these four living creatures that are weird, right? They're covered in eyes. It says they are covered in eyes inside and out, right? Not just front and back, but inside and outside. I don't know what it means that they have eyes on the inside. That would be terrifying. Um, That's my irrational fear. I couldn't come up with one, but (laughs) eyes on the inside of me is my irrational fear. Um, They have six wings apiece, right? One looks like a man, one looks like an eagle, one looks like an ox, one looks like a lion. These are angels, right, that are are kind of on the perimeter of this vision that we get in Revelation 4. So you've got a throne, it's bright, there's a rainbow around it, there's 24 elders around it, there's angels around it, and the whole thing is sitting on the sea of crystal glass. And then turn up the volume for this vision, right? What do you hear? Well, you hear the thunder that comes with the lightning that's coming from the throne, but there's also singing. There's worship. These angels, these four living creatures, are singing over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever they sing that song, the 24 elders respond, right? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So John gives, is given this glimpse into heaven, and this is his attempt at communicating to us what he sees. Right, A throne, bright, like invisible, because it's so pure and so clean, 
and it's surrounded by worship, okay? Now, there's a lot of other context and Easter eggs that we could focus on here, right? Uh, we talked about numbers a few weeks ago, and the number seven, how it signifies completeness, right? Kind of divine completeness, that when we talk about the letters to the seven churches, it's, it's the letters to all of the church. Well, the number 12 is also a significant number in the book of Revelation. The number 12 symbolizes completeness. And you say, Andrew, I thought seven symbolized completeness. And the answer is yes, they both do. But the flavor of completeness that 12 has is of the church, right? The people of God. And so in the Old Testament, you've got 12 tribes of Israel that kind of represent the whole. In the New Testament, you've got 12 apostles who are commissioned by God, who are sent out and kind of represent the whole. You say, Andrew, I don't see 12 in here. And you're right. But... As a student of North Carolina State University with a degree in mechanical engineering, I can confidently say that 12 plus 12 equals 24. And that's how many thrones we have here. It's impressive, right? Like, yeah, thank you. <clears throat> that degree does not go to waste. Um, yeah, these 24 elders are here. And so, like, you've got the 12 of the Old Testament and the 12 of the New together. It's the whole people of God, right, surrounding the throne of God in worship, right? That's cool. That's interesting. Or you could bring in some context, right? Last week we talked a lot about Laodicea and its neighboring towns and its kind of industry. Uh, but, but when you think about John himself, who's writing this, his theological context, his biblical context, religious context, is the Old Testament, right? The scripture that he had, that he grew up with and that he was familiar with. And so as he's describing these pictures, he grabs from the Old Testament to try and like explain and put into words what he's seeing, and so when you see thunder and lightning from the throne, like maybe you think of Mount Sinai, right, where Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and there's this like lightning storm of, of thunder and lightning and flashes of fire, right? When you see the rainbow, maybe you think of Genesis and the flood and God's promises and his faithfulness to those promises. Even the four living creatures, like they're not made up. This isn't the first time they show up. They're straight out of Ezekiel, and they're even weirder there than they are here, Go read it sometime. It's bizarre. But, but here's what I want you to see. You don't need any of that to be blown away by this picture, right? If you just read slowly and carefully through chapter 4, you can see it, right? You can see this bright presence in the middle surrounded by layer upon layer upon layer of worship, right? And the other thing you'll notice, if you just read slowly and carefully, is what we read in verse 1, Jesus, that's the voice that's speaking to John in verse 1, invites John and he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is getting invited by Jesus into the heavenly throne room and said, like, here, let me enlighten you. Let me let you peek behind the curtain. Let me show you the things that are going to take place, how history is going to unfold. But for the rest of the chapter, nothing happens. Right? Jesus invites John, come and see what's going to take place, and, like, nothing happens. There's worship, sure, right? There's radiance and brightness, but, like, there aren't any events yet. It's just a picture of the throne room. And I think the impact for John there, the impact for the churches that he wrote to, and the impact for us is the same. Right? No matter how much of the, the Old Testament imagery and symbolism we, we pick up on, we see that when Jesus invites John to see what's really going on, it's as if he's saying, John, before you see anything else, get this fact settled. At the center of everything, there's a throne. 
and it is not empty. Right? Before John gets any other visions of what's going to happen in history, of what God is up to, he has this vision of a throne that is occupied. Right? We're going to come back to this in a minute, but let's keep moving through the passage. We'll talk about what that means in a minute and kind of the implications of that. But, but if you have a Bible or if you have it open on your phone or something, look at Revelation chapter 5. It starts off like this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John describes this scene. He wants us to see this throne and, and the, the church around it and the angels around them all worshiping God. And then he, he goes back and he looks at the figure on the throne and in his hand he has a scroll, right? And it's sealed with seven seals. We're not told what exactly is on this scroll uh, and there's like some minor debate about it, but most commentators agree that it's God's plan for history, Right? It's his description of like everything that will come to pass, which makes perfect sense, right? Because who sits on thrones? Kings. What do kings do? Make decrees, right? Go do this. Live this way. Pay these taxes, right? And so it makes sense that this scroll would be God's decree for history. Here's everything that's going to happen, right? And if you look what John says about it, uh, it, it's covered, right? Verse 1, it's written within and on the back, right? Front and back, like full of text, right? This plan is detailed. This plan doesn't leave anything out, right? There's no room for anything else. It's the fullness of God's design for human history. And it's sealed with seven seals. What does that mean? Um, if you're into watching like historical movies or like History Channel documentaries or something like that, you probably uh, will have an idea of this, um, but there's kind of two different things that are communicated by sealing something. The first is just that you protect it, right? So when you write a letter, because I know that all of you have the hobby of writing letter, handwriting letters to your friends and professors and your grandma back home, but when you write a letter, you fold it up and you put it in an envelope and you pull off that little piece of like kind of paper, but it's waxy that protects the adhesive and you close it, right? That's sealing it, that's protecting it. Right? That's saying no one is allowed to open this except the person who it's intended to. And fun fact, opening mail that's not addressed to you, it's a federal offense. So just put that in your pocket, keep that in the back of your mind. Don't open other people's mail. Not a good idea. Um, so that's one sense of sealing, right? That it protects something. But the other sense of sealing is that it means that it's authentic. Right? It means that it's, it's authoritative. Okay? So for hundreds of years, seals communicated authenticity. Um, among the other, many other like shiny, resplendent things that kings would wear, they would often have what's called a signet ring. Uh, and it wasn't like gaudy. It didn't have a bunch of gems and jewels on it or anything. It was, it was a ring that would go on your finger, and it was flat on the top. And it had some weight, had some heft to it. And, and on that flat top would be engraved a family crest, a sigil, some pattern, something that was unique to that king or general or duke or whoever needed to give orders, right? And what they would do is they would draft up these documents and they would pour wax on it and they would take their signet ring and press it into the wax. And it would leave an impression from that king, 
right, that, that you couldn't fake, that said, this is from the king. This is from this general. You know that it's authentic. You know that it's sure, right? You know that it's genuine. And sometimes you would take that document and roll it up, right? And on the top of it, you'd dribble some wax and you'd seal that as well. So it's sealed and it's sealed, right? It's protected and it's authentic. And here we have this scroll, right? Full of the decrees of God with seven seals on it, locked and genuine. But there's a question. Who on earth, who in heaven, can read the thing? Right, because part of what a king does is he makes decrees and then he gives them to somebody else to carry them out. Right, the king's not saying, here's what we're going to go do, everybody follow me. No, the king makes decrees and he gives them to somebody else to carry out. And so there's a question, right? Who is able to carry out this plan of God? Right, God's plan encompasses all of human history. Thousands and thousands of years. It involves creation and salvation and judgment on evil and wickedness and the defeat of Satan himself. It's intricate, right? It covers the front and back of the scroll. Who is worthy is the question. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can know the mind of God? Who has the power and authority to carry out these decrees? Who has the wisdom and skill to see it all accomplished? Who can know these things? Who is worthy? And we say, I am. Right? I know that you know the answer is Jesus, right? Like, that's obviously what I'm building to. But don't we, like, step in and be like, I could handle that. At least I could handle the part of that that applies to me. And I really kind of desperately want to. Um, seniors, assuming you're graduating in May, um, you're going to experience something in the holidays um, that there's just no way to prepare for. It's just going to come. Get ready for it. You're going to go to your Nana's house. You're going to go to Uncle Bob's. And they're going to say, so, what are you doing after graduation? And some of you have an answer to that question. And some of you, that question makes you want to curl up on a ball on the floor and cry. Because you don't know, right? And when they ask you at Easter, who are you going to work for? And you haven't heard back from anybody. Like, you're just going to want to run out of the room. Sophomores. What are you going to do with the, so what are you going to major in question, right? When you don't know who you are or what you like, right? And all of us, what are you going to do when that sweet old lady at church or that neighbor who babysat you says like, have you met anybody special yet? <laughs> we do this spiritually too, right? Like, God, which job should I take? Or who will give me a job? God, how long will I have to deal with this struggle or this sickness, or this weakness, or this burden? How long does my family have to go through this? When are you going to provide this thing that I really need? And maybe in our better moments, we recognize that we're not in control, but still maybe we pray something like, look, I don't need it now, right? I really am content, but if I know when this is going to end, right? Or if I know when this blessing is actually finally going to come, then I think I can make it, right? In other words, God... Show me the scroll, right? Let me see the plan that you have for me. Tell me the plan. Let me know that there is one and what's going to happen. But would that really help you? Like, honestly, when it comes to things that matter, would knowing the timing of whatever it is that keeps you up at night, would that help you? Right? Christian growth comes not from our wisdom, not from like, having insight into God's particular plan for us. 
Christian growth comes from seeing and relying on Jesus. Right? So we grow in patience as we see his wisdom and we rely on his timing. We grow in trust as we see his goodness towards us and we rest in that and rely on it. We grow in kindness as we see his mercy towards us and we rely on it over and over and over again. And seeing his kindness towards us frees us to be kind towards others. Right? But if God gave us the answer to that when question, to the how long, O oh Lord, question, would we need to rely on him? We are not worthy to open the scroll. John realizes this about himself, right, and about everyone, right? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And he starts to weep, right? No one, not, not any of the 24 elders in the throne room, not even these, these like freaky angels that are flying around. No one is worthy. And so John begins to weep because how is this plan of God going to be accomplished if none is worthy? And then in verse 5, we read this. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The good news in this passage is that there is one who's worthy to open the scrolls. And in this description in verse 5, he sure sounds like it, doesn't he? Right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. At the end of Genesis, way back at the beginning of the Bible, Jacob is blessing his sons. Jacob's the father of Joseph, and Jacob is dying, and he looks at each of his sons, and he speaks a word of blessing over them. And to Jacob, he says, you are a lion, and kings will come from you, right? The scepter will never depart from your family. And so we've got this lion of Judah, this, this last in the line of descendants of kings. We've got the root of David. David, the best king that Israel ever had, right? The stuff that he grew from, that root, is Jesus. And the one who conquered, right? He's proven his might and power. He's won. He's worthy, right? That's the good news. There is one who's worthy to open the scroll. But then we read this in verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, right? So walking among those, those 24 thrones, I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, right? John hears about a lion, and he turns and he looks, and he sees a lamb. Not just any lamb, but one who has been slain, right? You see, there's only one reason that a lamb gets slain in the Bible, as a sacrifice for sin, for atonement. That's how they take away sin, is by dying. Their blood pays the price, pays the penalty, and covers over our sin, And this is Jesus, of whom John the Baptist, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, different Johns, by the way, John the Baptist didn't write the Gospel of John, different dudes, but the one who wrote the Gospel of John is the one who wrote Revelation. It's confusing. It's a common name. Um, This is Jesus, about whom John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this Lamb, in verse 7, he goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne, and as soon as he does, everybody in the throne room hits the deck, right? They fall down in worship. Verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
isn't this song weird? Isn't that song a little bit odd? I mean, look at it again, right? At the beginning of the song, if you have it in front of you, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, right? You're the one capable enough. You're the one strong enough. You're the one wise enough to take the seals. You are worthy. Why? Because you were slain, right? For you died. <laughs> like, it's as if they're saying, you lost, therefore you're worthy. You died, therefore you're strong enough to open the scroll. You were shamed and scorned and mocked and beaten and humiliated and crucified. Come, lead us into God's plan. You were last, come be first. Isn't that weird, right? That doesn't compute with the ways that we normally think, right? That's, that doesn't fit our definition of conquer. But this isn't an, this isn't an anomaly, it's really hard to say. Um, if you keep reading in chapter 5, John keeps going. The camera zooms out. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Right? The camera zooms out, and you see that it's not just these four angels, but hordes of angels surrounding this throne room who are all worshiping and they're singing worthy is the lamb who was slain which again is weird to be that specific because there aren't any other lambs in the room right there's an eagle there's an ox there's a bull but there's only one lamb like they don't need to specify which lamb we're talking about but they're at great pains to say worthy is the lamb who was slain and yet this seems to be the very thing they can't stop focusing on. The camera zooms out again in verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This worship, this adoration is directed at the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And in the rest of the book of Revelation, the only person that accepts worship is God himself. Right? There's a few points in the books where somebody like, tries to start worshiping an angel, and they're like, no, 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 that's not for me. Like, point that at him. Right? The only person that receives worship is God himself. And here we have the one who's seated on the throne and the Lamb receiving worship. And so there's no question. The Lamb is the Son of God and God himself. So again, why this emphasis on weakness? Why this tunnel vision on the lamb who was slain? Remember the truth that Revelation 4 presses on us, that at the center of everything there's a throne and it is not empty. We, that, like, that's really good news, but there's almost this like, underlying footnote question about like, what if... Like, what if that person on the throne is a tyrant? What if that one on the throne is selfish or incompetent or only interested in themselves, right? Maybe you've worked for somebody like that, right? Somebody in your life who has authority. Maybe you have a class with somebody like that. Somebody who has authority but is only interested in themselves. And all they're interested in for you is what you can do for them. Here's what Revelation 5 presses on to us. That that throne at the center of everything is occupied by one who loves you and is unquestionably good. 
right? Anything written in that scroll must be for your good. Any delays that frustrate you must be for your growth. Any difficulties that come into your life come from a lamb who sees you and knows you and loves you and died for you. Because this king, right, this crucified king did not cling to power or strength. He doesn't rule at your expense. He gives all that up, his power, his strength. He is himself ruined to serve and to rescue and to ransom you. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, for by his blood he ransomed people for God. So whatever comes in the rest of this book, right, whatever the events are that John is about to see, and whatever comes in your life, whatever you're going through right now, you can trust that it is not random, right? You can endure, not in your strength, but resting on him. You can know that the circumstances of your life and the things that God is taking you through are not pointless or senseless or petty or retaliatory or meaningless or accidental. It comes from the decree of a father who loves you and is accomplished by a worthy lamb who died for you. In that good news, we can endure. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about ourselves that we are not worthy, and yet so often we think we are. We demand knowledge. We demand to know what you're doing and when you're going to do something for us. But Father, you've also shown us the truth about yourself, that you are at the center of everything, that you are seated on your throne, and your rule is unquestionable, and your rule is unquestionably good. Because what your rule has accomplished is our salvation, is your son giving up himself for us. And I pray that you would help us to remember that, Help us remember that tomorrow morning when we're walking to class, that that there's a king seated on the throne and he's loved me all along. Help us to remember that on our way home. Uh, Help us to remember that as we're doing homework, as we struggle through just day-to-day life. Help us to remember that there's a king seated on the throne and there's a lamb who is worthy of all honor and glory and wisdom and power and strength and might and everything, and he is for us. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen.